0: All right, session two here, we're going to address this question, what are key arguments for broad complementarianism? So now I get to argue. I guess I've argued a little bit already, but this is going to be this full-blown argument. So I'm going to present six of what I think are the most significant arguments, key arguments for broad complementarianism. Uh, If you want to study this more, I'd say the top three books are the the classic book, the 1991 book, uh, Recovering. Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. It's almost 600 pages. That's the Ur er text of complementarianism. Um, and egalitarians responded to that with an entire book in 2005, edited by Pearson Groteis. The second one is by Wayne Grudem, called Evangelical Feminism and Biblical Truth. Anyone of you familiar with that book? It addresses like a hundred questions, organized really well. It's impeccably organized, really clear. It's, it's excellent. And then a third book is by uh, Andreas Kostenberger and Tom Schreiner called Women in the Church and Interpretation and Application of 1 Timothy 2, 9-15, 3rd edition, so the 2016 version, over 400 pages. It's the definitive analysis of that passage. Excellent. Okay, so now let's, uh, let's jump in. Six arguments. Argument number one, God designed male headship before the fall. So there are foundational principles in Genesis 1-3. Here are just nine arguments, among others, that male headship... Uh, God designed it in marriage before the fall it Is the order. God created Adam first, and Eve. The representation, God created uh, uh, Adam to have a special role in representing the human race. The naming of the woman, so the per- person who names uh, a created thing is always the person who has authority over those things. The naming of the human race, God named the human race man, Adam, not woman, Adama. The primary accountability, God spoke to Adam first after the fall. The purpose, Eve was created as a helper for Adam not Adam as a helper for Eve, got the conflict where the curse brings a distortion of previous roles, doesn't introduce new ones, and the restoration, when we come to the New Testament, salvation in Christ confirm, reaffirms the creation order, and then the mystery, from the beginning, marriage uh, is picturing the relationship between Christ and the church, so embedded in in those arguments are, are foundational principles that apply to more than just marriage, I'll talk about some of them below. But but one of them I'll, I'll mention now, is it significant that when Adam and Eve sinned, God spoke to Adam first. Um, so in Genesis 3, 6, uh, uh, the text says Adam was with her. Adam was there when the snake was talking to Eve. So when Adam ate, he rebelled against God by not obeying what God commanded, which he failed to lead and protect his wife. So... Uh, This is G.K. Beale. He says, Adam should have slain and thus judged the serpent in carrying out the mandate of Genesis 1.28 to rule and subdue. But instead, the serpent ended up ruling over Adam and Eve by persuading them with deceptive words. And when God says, where are you? Genesis 3.9, the word in Hebrew is singular. Where are you, Adam? He's going after Adam. He directly addresses Adam, not both Adam and Eve. Adam's primarily responsible. He's the head of the husband-wife relationship. So later scripture pins, it blames Adam for the fall into sin, Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15. I, I just wrote a book. It's going to come out this fall. It's a biblical theology of snakes and dragons. It's called The Serpent and the Serpent Slayer. And in that book, I argue that one way to summarize the storyline of scripture is kill the dragon, get the girl. And when I explain this passage, I say that Adam should have killed the dragon and rescued his girl right here. And he didn't, he failed. Okay, that's argument number one. There's so much more we could say. I'm gonna be clipping along because I wanna focus on argument two and five. Argument two, male headship is fitting. So i want to talk about the logic of 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 11. I'm not going to exegete these in detail. If you wanna exegete 1, uh, 1 Timothy 2, 9 to 15, again, the, the, the book that Schreiner and Kostenberger edited, is the go-to source. I can't do better than that. It's amazing. But what I wanna focus on right now is the logic. So let me just read the passage. Uh, I'll read uh, 2, 12 to 14 to remind you what it says. Uh, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So here's the question I wanna focus on. Why? does Paul prohibit a woman from the function of teaching or exercising authority over a man when the church gathers to worship? Why? And if if you have the text in front of you, you can look at it again. It's 1 Timothy 2, 12 to 14. It says, I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. And the next word is for. So if you're trying to trace the argument, you've got, the principle, the, the, here's what he doesn't allow. And then four introduces a supporting argument, a reason. And he gives two reasons. The first reason is God formed Adam first, and then he formed Eve. The second reason is Adam wasn't deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So those are two principles he cites to support verse 12. And here's, here's my point. That means that these principles support other applications too. I wrote this out on the handout so you could track what I'm, what I'm trying to argue here. I could say, I do not permit my daughter to marry a woman for, as here's the reason, God created marriage for one man and one woman. Now that, that reason is a principle that applies to more than that one application. I don't permit my daughter to marry a donkey or her toy doll or a child or a snake. You see, you see how the logic, the, how you can have a, a, a truth that supports uh, a prohibition, but, it, but if you're grounding the prohibition in that truth, you can look at the truth and go, oh, that actually could apply to more than just that prohibition. Everyone tracking with me? Okay. So here are a few other examples from this letter. 1 Timothy 5.4 says, If a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For, it's gar, here's the reason. This is a principle that applies it in more than one way. This is pleasing in the sight of God. So he says, this is what you should do because this is pleasing in the sight of God. Well, this is pleasing in the sight of God could support more than just what he said, Right? Lots of things are pleasing in the sight of God. Here's another example. Same letter, 1 Timothy five seventeen and 18. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Gar, four, the scripture says, reason one, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And reason two, the laborer deserves his wages. Those two scripture quotations support more than you should give double honor to those who preach and teach. You see see this pattern, how you can have, here's what I'm saying you must do for, and he gives a reason, and the reason can support more than just what he said. Everyone understanding my logic, okay? All right, now, back to 1 Timothy 2, 8 to 15. In the very next paragraph after this one, Paul writes that an overseer, a pastor, an elder, must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his, old household, his own household, how will he care for God's church? So what we see in back-to-back sections is there's a connection between a man leading his home and a man leading a church. There's something fitting about a man leading. Male headship is fitting. 1 Corinthians 11 is similar. 1 Corinthians 11, 7-9 to nine, says, a, a man ought not to cover his head, since, here's the reason, since he's the glory, he's the image and glory of God, but a woman is the glory of man. Gar, for, here's reason one, man was not made for woman, but woman for man. Gar, reason two, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. He's reasoning the same way. He's got principles, and he's applying them to something specific, but if you look at the principles, they apply to more than just a specific situation. So, Why? Does God command wives to submit to husbands? Why does God command that only men teach and exercise authority of the church? Is it arbitrary? Is it like God flipped a coin? Uh -uh, No, he flipped it there. And and, oh, okay, men are going to lead, women are going to follow. Is that how it works? Is it just, it could have gone either way and God just had to pick one? Or is it fitting? Is fittingness involved? If fittingness is involved, which is how Paul argues in 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 11, then how does that fittingness principle apply to anything else? Why would we say it applies only to marriage and ordination? If you say it applies only to marriage and ordination, I'd say, why? Why why would it apply only to that? Why is it most fitting for a man to teach and exercise authority over the gathered church Does the Bible give further reasons beyond that Jesus is male? And and why is it fitting that Jesus is male? So I hope you're you're tracking my argument here. It's basically saying that this broad complementarian view simply is trying to argue like Paul does, that male headship is fitting. It's not arbitrary. So when a broad complementarian like Piper argues that he doesn't think it's fitting for a woman to be a police officer or a drill sergeant or a seminary professor or whatever... You might disagree with his applications, but can you agree that he's just trying to argue following the same logic that we just saw in 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 11? He's, he's actually trying to say, what's true? How does this reflect reality? How might these truths apply to more than just this prohibition that we see in this text? I think what he's doing, Piper's doing, is noble, even if you don't agree with all of his applications. At least he's trying to apply the Bible to all of life. And it really bothers me when people like Amy Bird in her book ridicule Piper for being so traditional and culture-bound and unfair and disrespectful to women. And I just want to say, I don't see you using Paul's logic in First Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 11 in a similar way. So here's here's a, how Bird. Amy Bird argues in her book, she says, bonus question for complementarian churches, if there are no female voices in seminary, how do we expect the pastors graduating not to shepherd a church with a distinctly male culture? If men and women are distinct sexes, how do we train pastors to preach for and shepherd both men and women in their congregations? How do we expect them to value the female voice if they're not told, if they are told they should not learn from them in seminary? So you see, her her argument is, we need to have female professors Otherwise, our pastors aren't going to be very good. And uh, one of the people who critiqued my my book review before it came out was my fellow church member, Abigail Dodds. Her husband's a fellow elder with me on, on the team at Bethlehem. And this is what she said when she read Bird's question. She said, we expect pastors to be able to shepherd women well because they have the Holy Spirit. And because they have women in their lives, mothers, sisters, wives, daughters, friends, whom they're living with, learning from, etc. Priscilla's exists in the church, and men do well to listen to them. But that doesn't mean women must get a paycheck or a pulpit or a formal position of authority over men in order to faithfully fulfill what God calls them to do. I'm going to pause right here before I go on to argument three, because this one is, in my view, critical, really a big one. Do you want to push back or clarify something? What I'm arguing here? So that, uh, head coverings are not binding because of that. Force. I'm gonna stop you there. He's asking about head coverings. Great question. Session three. Okay. I've got that's it, in the, in the works. It's coming. Okay. We've got to talk about that. Yeah. So basically, it's saying if Paul's rooting uh, some kind of uh, command in a creation principle, well, first Timothy two says don't let them teacher have authority over men. First Corinthians 11 says, wear a head covering. Well today, we're not wearing head covering, so maybe that means we shouldn't follow in 1 Timothy 2. So we'll talk about that. Yep, the red bandana. Uh, a woman couldn't teach a biblical language. Not at all. Um, so there's a debate among complementarians about whether it's appropriate for a woman to be a professor in a seminary. And uh, Piper argues, well, given the nature of a seminary, it seems most fitting for men to be the professors. I've got friends who would argue, well, it depends on maybe teaching Hebrew or Greek would be different, or, or coming in for, for certain classes to, to share perspectives, but not teaching the exegesis and theology courses. So I teach in a seminary, and, but our seminary, which Mel attended, Daniel graduated from, uh, uh, Dan Miller's son uh, back there, Ethan, is in our seminary now we're a pastor training school. We train pastors. We don't have female students. Uh, We're we're a pastor training school, so we think it's most appropriate that men be professors. But I understand other schools have different strategies. Uh, But even in a pastor training school, for some of my classes, I will bring in uh, women uh, to be in my classes for certain topics. Like when I teach ethics, I bring in uh, Dr. Susan Lim sometimes, she's a a medical doctor, to talk about uh, different aspects of bioethics. Um, so I'm not against learning from women, not at all. But the lo- I'm just saying that the logic that Piper uses for that are, is similar to the logic in 1 Timothy 2. Okay, other questions on this passage? Yes, sir. I don't know if it's appropriate to view of that, that second reason. Yes, let me I don't say, know if there's a question there. I'm he's asking what is Paul's, the principle that the woman was a seed, the man wasn't, what, what is that getting at? So complementarians handle this differently. Uh, some, including Piper and Grudem, would argue that the, the key issue there is that this, the serpent came and spoke to Eve and not to Adam and subverted the created order. And it's not that, sh- that the woman's more gullible than the man. Some commentarians would say, well, yes, that's part of it for sure, but there also might be something to it that this, in the disposition of women, as a general rule, they might be more gullible to certain kinds of arguments and temptations and that men are better protectors as a general rule. That's another, another view that it is includes the Piper and grittem but adds it. So there's not the complementarian view on that passage uh, for that issue. Okay. Argument three, if you want to circle back, we can. Argument three, a wife's submission to her husband is fitting. So let's look at the logic of Colossians three, eighteen and 19 and Ephesians, Five twenty-one to 33. Let me remind you what Colossians 3 says. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So what do you, you ever meditated on that phrase, as is fitting? Fitting? So that word doesn't occur very frequently in the New Testament. Here are a few other times that Paul uses it. Ephesians 5, 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place that is they're not fitting but instead let there be thanksgiving so, so some things are fitting based on how God designed the universe and this passage Colossians 3:18 is saying that a wife's submission to her husband is fitting and one way to unpack why that's the case is to look at the parallel passage Ephesians 5 which says it starts off uh, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to, in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of His body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you, each one of you, love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So, there's something fitting here about. How God designed men and women, husbands and wives, to relate. Uh, a husband is the head of his wife. A wife is responsible to submit to her husband. I'd like to unpack both of those statements, and I think I've got them on your handout. Yes, I do. Why must a wife submit to her own husband as to the Lord? For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. That's why It's fitting. And Paul says something similar in 1 Corinthians eleven three. 3. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. So as, as the head, a husband has authority over his wife. But what does that mean? What, what does a husband's headship mean? I think it means this. A husband's responsible to exercise headship by lovingly leading his wife. A husband's responsible for his wife in a way that a wife is not responsible for her husband. A husband leads by unselfishly loving his wife. He makes decisions with her best interests in mind, even when they come at great cost to himself. Verses 22 to thir- 23 to 33, that's what it's about, Ephesians 5. A Christ-like husband leads his wife by unselfishly serving his wife. So it's just a responsibility that requires service. Good leaders serve like Jesus. And a godly husband leads his wife by serving her like Jesus serves the church. So it's meeting needs and desires with a sacrificial, unselfish love. That's headship. What does it not mean? Well, some Christians, many non-Christians negatively react to this idea of headship because throughout history, many husbands have selfishly, sinfully taken advantage of their headship. So it's important to clarify what it doesn't mean. I'll mention three It doesn't mean that a husband is inherently better than his wife. Of course, both are equally made in God's image. 1 Peter 3, God commands husbands to live with your wives in an understanding way, And, and you're to show honor to her as a weaker vessel because they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Heirs with you of the grace of life. There's no inferiority, superiority relationship here. Heirs with you of the grace of life. Number two, headship doesn't mean that a husband may selfishly treat his wife in a harsh or dominary manner. The one command in Colossians three eighteen or three nineteen is, "Husbands, love your wives, and don't be harsh with them." That's how he qualifies it. Don't be harsh. Right there in black and white. So if you're if you're being harsh, you're you're not obeying Scripture. And one sinful response of a person in the position of headship is to selfishly take advantage of that position by being heavy-handed, mean-spirited, harsh, demanding, and unloving ways. And God hasn't given men this authority in the home for the purpose of, of gratifying our pleasures or exploiting the opportunity for ease and comfort. We must use such authority with benevolence, uh, to use it to serve others. It's, it's so that those under our care will relate to God and fellow humans well and, and flourish And number three, headship doesn't mean that a husband may selfishly abdicate his leadership to his wife. So many husbands don't want to lead because it's so much work. (laughs) You know that if you're a pastor, it's hard work to lead well. Uh, It's much easier to be lazy and passive and just let events play out. But when a husband's apathetic and uninvolved and distant and absent, it just puts his wife in an awkward position because someone's got to make decisions. Okay, that's that's one side. On the other, a wife is responsible to submit to her husband. So Colossians 3.18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. I just read Ephesians 5 to you. I'll read one line again. Wives, submit to your own husbands as the church submits to Christ. So wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. Titus 2, uh, older women are to teach what is good and so train the young women, to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. First Peter 3, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. And later, uh, submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and don't fear anything that's frightening. So, very clear in Scripture, wives are to submit to their husbands. What does that mean? Here's, here's my short definition. A wife submits by gladly following her husband. In, in a look at the book session on 1 Peter 3, here's how John Piper defines submission. He says, submission is the divine calling of a wife to joyfully and fearlessly honor and affirm her husband's leadership and to help carry it through according to her gifts. This is beautiful. And, and we celebrate this. It, it's a beautiful thing. Now, it's important to qualify what it doesn't mean. I'll mention a few, a few things that submission doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that a wife may manipulate her husband. Uh, you know, some wives have mastered the art of appearing to be submissive while actually not submitting, actually manipulating their husbands like puppets. You know, like my husband might be the head, but I'm the neck and I can turn him whichever way I want. Uh, so that's, that's not submission, that destroys the head metaphor. Uh, number two, it doesn't mean that a wife may grudgingly follow her husband to be joyful. Glad, willing. And number three, it doesn't mean that a wife should mindlessly follow her husband. Look at 1 Peter 3 carefully. And you see, it implies a wife may disagree with her husband on an important matter. So in that passage, a believing wife will disagree with her unbelieving husband about following Jesus. It's a pretty important issue. And she's disagreeing with him. A wife may attempt to change her husband. Uh, So in 1 Peter 3, a believing wife wants her unbelieving husband to follow Christ. And she's trying to change her husband that way. Uh, a wife's ultimate allegiance to God is to God, not her husband. So in extreme cases, a wife may not follow her husband, like if her husband's asking her to sin against God. And last uh, is that submission doesn't mean that all women must submit to all men. I get so frustrated when I hear people represent complementarianism as that all women must submit to all men. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what complementarians teach. So what First Peter 3 says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, your own husbands. So my wife doesn't submit to you. And when my daughters are growing up, they don't submit to their boy classmates. They submit to me and to their teachers and to their pastors. And so it's, it's not that all wives submit to all men. That's argument three that, that headship and submission are, are fitting. Number four, argument four. Husbands and wives have different obligations that flow from their distinct identities as men and women. So, this is the logic of 1 Peter 3, which I just read parts of. So, 1 Peter 3, 1 to 7, the first, it's two chunks first to wives, then to husbands. So, he says, Wives, here's what you need to do. Husbands, here's what you need to do. And what I want to focus on here is th- just notice that the commands to husbands and wives are different. So, they have. Different obligations that flow from their distinct identities as men and women. So here's this is just a a great litmus test to see where you are at on this. If a little boy or a little girl comes to you and says, What does it mean for me to be a man? What does it mean for me to be a woman? What do you say? I've watched some very funny YouTube videos on this where people just grab people off the street, like at women's marches, and they'll say, so what does it mean to be a woman? And with the LGBT stuff going on now, they're like afraid to say anything. <laughs> it's like, whoa, <laughs> it's sputter. Uh, we have the Bible. What do we say? And I've got on your handout here an answer from Kevin DeYoung. Uh, so it's, he's got it as an A-B-C-D-E. This is a helpful thing. I read read through his whole article with my girls. They they really enjoyed it. So he says, here's, here's a way to think about it. Appearance, body, character, demeanor, and eager posture. So for appearance, men and women are different and should look different. So confusing the appearances is contrary to nature. For body, gender carries with it its own oughtness. Our actions should correspond to divinely created identity. I'm going to talk about that one in the next argument. C, character. So Peter enjoins women to be respectful, pure, and gentle. He enjoins men to show honor, understanding, and caring leadership. So we might suggest that from this passage, the crowning characteristic of a woman is true beauty, and the crowning characteristic of the man is true strength. Women are wired for beauty. Men generally are physically stronger, more interested in sports, more willing to indulge war movies more inclined activities like competitive hunting or fishing because they're wired for strength. That's why generally that's the case. D is demeanor. He he, he cites 1 Thessalonians 2 and says that Paul's describing his own ministry among the Thessalonians like that of a nursing mother, gentle, affectionate, sacrificial. And then he describes his ministry as fatherly, full of exhortation, encouragement, and leadership. So he's identifying these demeanors as corresponding with women and with men. And then finally, uh, E is eager posture. The wife should be willing to be led, and the husband eager to take the sacrificial initiative to lead. All right, I'll pause there. Questions thus far? You track them? Okay, can you push back at all? Yes, sir. in the back. I'm just wondering. You're asking, why is is submission a leadership and following issue as opposed to what? Uh, He's asking, is, 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 the essence of submission following or is it something else? Is that that's what you're asking? Well, you can see by my definition, I think so. Um, and here's a way to test it. Think of the ways we submit in other relationships. So I'm a citizen of, of America. And and based on Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, I need to submit to our government. Uh, So that means following. Uh, I'm I'm a member of a church, so the church could excommunicate me, right? So the, the test of your submission is when you disagree. It's easy to submit. When you agree, that's not really submission, really. It's you're just doing what you think is right, and it and that's that's the way you, you would lead if you were the leader. The test is, oh, my leader is going a way different, a different direction. What am I going to do? And and submitting is following. Like obedience, like, it's just curious to about- it, obedience, yeah. So following is and obeying are similar just life of different nuances, would you prefer the word obey? is that what you're getting at? Not getting, you're not getting anything you're just okay, I don't want to frustrate you. I'm really trying to understand you. you're not frustrated, okay. We can come back to that if you want to, yes, ma'am yeah she's asking so is is like the essence of submission. Um, uh, when you disagree with the decision, does that mean you just go along with it? Do you have to go along with it joyfully? What if you really convinced of another view? How does this work? Is it like husband and wife and the husband has tie-breaking authority? Is that the kind of deal? Um, so, uh, I do think if there's not a tie-breaking authority idea there, it's not, it's not, uh, authority and submission relationship at all. It's just a mutual, you know, figure it out, come to agreement. Truces, and that's just not how the text presents it. On the other hand, any wise leader will tell you, you don't just want to say, I'm the king, submit to me, here's what we're doing. That's going to destroy all your relationships. That's not loving itself to do it that way. Aren't you glad that when God tells us to do stuff so often, He gives us reasons? So do this because He doesn't have to do that. That's a gift to us to help us understand, oh, this actually makes sense. This is fitting. There's a logic to what God's saying. So when, if, if, like, let's go parents to kids, that's a little less charged. Uh, if, if a parent tells a child, you know, a, a command, do this, and the child doesn't want to do it, wh- what do you say to the child? Well, you're the kid, I'm the parent, I've asked you to do it, and you need to do it right now, with a happy heart, all the way, right away, uh, and that's, that's, that would be uh, pleasing, and, and that would be what it means to follow your parents right now even if they don't understand all the reasons. It looks a little different when it's with two adults, uh, if you don't treat them like kids. Uh, so it's a husband and wife, and they come to a disagreement. I think a, a loving husband would be very hesitant to just plow ahead if the wife is saying, I don't think that's wise. So when that, when that happens in my marriage, I'm very reluctant to move forward if my wife is saying, I don't think that's wise. I listen to her. And, and, and value her, her input and I am much more confident when we both agree about a big decision like that but occasionally we we come down differently on something and she's great about it she'll just say you know what? you're the leader I'll follow you that's my job and I'm happy to do it and I'll defer to you like like little things like uh, she she has a degree in early childhood ed and she's just freaked out about how much kids look at screens she hates how much people are, how much kids look at screens okay I, I I'm like, yeah, it's probably not best, but I'm more of the pushover. Like, yeah, let's watch this together. Uh, I, I, I don't think it's gonna kill him, uh, and but I'm, I'm right there with them. We're having fun together. She'd rather like go outside and draw a picture of a tree. So, like, this is a small thing, and it irritates her that I'm not completely the way she thinks on that issue, but she's she's okay with it. That's a small example, little things like that, but it could be bigger things like. Uh, when in 2013, we moved to Minneapolis, uh, so I could teach at Bethlehem College Seminary. She hates cold weather. She just despises it. And she grew up in South Carolina and she was not looking forward to coming here. But as we thought through it, talked through it, she's like, I think God's calling you here. I'm, I'm behind this, but I'm going a little reluctantly cause I just not, I don't look forward to, to living there. And now looking back, she's so glad we came. She, she actually likes it here. Uh, but if I were to say, well, if you're not as excited as I am, I'm not doing it. I wouldn't have come. But someone's got a lead, and I'm, I'm glad we, we end up doing that. And she would tell you the same thing. I, uh, I have another example, but I decided not to give it. But that, all right. <laughs> I shouldn't have told you that. All right. Uh, argument five. This is the big one. Uh, and the, it's, I put so much more in your handout here, because this is the one that I think you hear the least. Uh, it's it's least likely that you will hear a sermon that focuses on what you're about to hear. So that's why I have the, the quotes. I want you to I want this to sink in for you to feel the weight of this argument. It's that God designed men and women differently This is common sense from natural theology. So I'm going to read first from Joe Rigney. He argues that scripture and nature speak with one voice and then he applies that to men and women. So listen to what he says. Nature is not infinitely malleable and plastic. God is the almighty maker of heaven and earth, and he made a cosmos, an an ordered and structured world with a determinate character. Nature is stubborn. By virtue of God's creating and sustaining acts, nature has an integrity, a unity, harmony, design. There's an immutable givenness to reality that's unavoidable and is inescapable despite the best efforts of rebellious humans to subject it to their will. And this givenness is such that we need not always appeal to scripture directly to justify Christian ethical teaching. Christian ethical teaching is universal, normative, creational, and natural. There are some things we need the Bible for. Nature will not tell you that Christ died for sinners and calls you to repentance and faith. You need a Bible for that. But you don't need a Bible to know what a man is or what a woman is and what marriage is and what sex is for. Such things are part of natural revelation and are sufficiently clear to all men everywhere that our refusal to acknowledge them will condemn us on the last day. So if we don't need a Bible to know what a man is and what a woman is and what marriage is and what sex is for, then why has God graciously given us a Bible that speaks to these issues and a gospel that addresses them directly? How does the Bible or the gospel or special revelation relate to this revelation of God in the natural order? Number one, the gospel does not create a new sexual ethic. Number two, instead the gospel ratifies and clarifies the natural creational sexual ethic. Three, it further grounds the natural creational sexual ethic in the work of Christ. Honor God with your body because you were bought with a price. But this new grounding doesn't overthrow the original grounding of sexual ethics in the natural order. And four, the gospel provides the power to live in accord with the way that God made us. We might put it this way. Scripture confronts what we are by fallen nature. We're children of wrath. By pointing us to what we are by created nature, In our rebellion, we do things that are contrary to nature and by being the means of renewing us in our redeemed nature. Uh, So we we put on the new self, we're created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness, and all that anticipates our future glorified nature. So in my judgment, he says, one of the, the crying needs of the hour is for Christians to know in their bones that our view of men and women and marriage and sexuality is not simply the product of Bible verses, but is itself natural normative, and universally binding on all people because we live in the world God made. It's incumbent upon pastors and teachers to instruct the church of God, not only what the scriptures require, but to point to the reasons beneath the rules that make God's written laws intelligible and reasonable. Our social context, what we often call the world, can easily deceive us here because the world is moving in one direction. We begin to feel that we're the weird ones. We're, we're the outliers, we begin to believe the propaganda that, that we're the last holdouts on the wrong side of history. But we're not the weird ones. Not just God and his word, but all of heaven and earth testifies to God's design for men and women in marriage and sexuality. Sometimes I just wanna shout out, sexuality is binary, there are men and there are women and that's true! Like, you live in this world and you can start thinking, am I getting gaslighted, like what's, what, is, what is going on here? Like, There's just reality. That's the way it is. All right. He says in a recent article, this uh, distinguishing nature, scripture, and culture. God's design and creation is nature expressed and clarified in the word of God. That's scripture. Wise and prudent application. That's culture. And God's built the world in a particular way, creating men and women for his mission, but doing so in a particular order and with a mutual dependence. So God's design and creation is a pattern. That pattern is clarified and expressed in various ways in the Bible, as the biblical authors authoritatively apply that creation pattern to a variety of situations, like head coverings we'll talk about in the next session. And then the pattern and the scripture and the application are the basis for our own applications in our cultural context. So getting straight on these categories that is, uh, nature, scripture, culture, is one of the ways we grow up into maturity as we learn to love not only biblical conclusions, but also the rationale and logic in God's world that lie beneath them. When asked about biblical commands, we don't throw up our hands and say, we don't know why, but God picked men to lead. Rather, we press beneath the commands into the reality, the grandeur, the goodness of his design, and we learn to marvel at the depth and beauty and wisdom of our God revealed in scripture and nature and then reflect his goodness and beauty and wisdom in a myriad of fitting and proper ways in our own culture, whether in the first century or the 21st. That's good, that's good. Okay, now I'm gonna introduce you to some women. I'm gonna quote uh, Elizabeth Elliot and then Abigail Dodds and then Mary Cassian. These are fantastic quotes. All right, so first, you know Elizabeth Elliot, married to Jim Elliot? All right, so this is a book she wrote to her daughter called Let Me Be a Woman. She says to her daughter, yours is the body of a woman. What does it signify? Is there invisible meaning in its visible signs? The softness, the smoothness, the lighter bone and muscle structure, the breasts, the womb? Are they utterly unrelated to what you yourself are? Isn't your identity intimately bound up with these material forms? How can we bypass matter in our search for understanding the person? There's a strange unreality in those who would do so and unwillingness to deal with the most obvious facts of all. Here's Abigail Dodds. She's using natural theology here. She says, why are hammers heavy and flat on one side? Why do books fit in your hands so nicely? Why is the bench at a piano at just the right height and the keys of the piano sized right for fingers? Why do hoses stretch long and attach to spigots? And why are women soft with breasts and arms and curved hips and feet and legs and a mind and a uterus and a monthly cycle. Why are grandmothers extra soft? Is it all just a fluke? What does it matter? Perhaps you think I'm minimizing your personhood, reducing women to the sum of their parts, implying that women are no more than a baby incubator, or worse, no more than their sexuality. But hear me out. Women are certainly more than their sexuality. We are more than a uterus or legs. We are more than softness and curves, more than even our minds. But we're not less than those things. We're not less than the bodies God has given us. Bodies matter. And these bodies will take us to our dying day or until he comes again. And then they will be made new and last forever. So God thinks pretty highly of our bodies. The world loves women's bodies for hedonistic autonomous uses like porn and promotion. But hates women's bodies when they do the very things they were made to do. Like bring helpless children into the world and give of themselves to keep them alive. Instead of using a hammer to hammer, we polish and paint it and hang it on the wall to stare at. Instead of making music with a piano, we refuse to have it tuned, and we superglue the keys in place so they can't strike a chord. But boy, do they look like they could make music were someone ever to try them out. Instead of a woman's body bringing forth life, we make it a graveyard of unwanted children. Christian women must understand our bodies as a part of God's unbreakable revelation to us. Have you ever heard things like this before? This is what I'm talking about, about connecting natural revelation to the roles of men and women. Yeah, one more. This is Mary Cassian. A recent article she wrote for Desiring God. I read the whole article to my, my daughters. They loved it. So she says, this is just a, a, an excerpt. Uh, she's rejecting how our culture portrays women. She says, if you tune into an action movie today, you'll routinely see women engage in hand-to-hand combat with men. The women are sassy, savvy, and as strong as men in every way. A five foot four, one hundred thirty five pound female protagonist can bend like a pretzel and use her ninja moves to easily vanquish several skilled male assassins at a time, even though they tower over her and outweigh her by at least fifty pounds, all while she's dressed in four inch spike heels and impossibly tight clothing. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah. Uh, She says, God fashioned our bodies, brains, and emotions to be strong in ways that support his design for us as men and women. Men have an average of 26 pounds more skeletal muscle, 40% more upper body strength, 33% more lower body strength than women. A male muscle generally fires faster and has higher maximum power output, male heart and lung function is such that when a man is jogging at about 50% of his capacity, a woman of the same size and weight would need to work at over 70% of her capacity to keep up with him. When it comes to physical power and speed, men are stronger than women. Let's pause there. If you ever watch the Olympics, you notice there are men's events and women's events. You ever watch the CrossFit Games? You know, when they have the same events, the weight limits for the different events will be different for the men and women every time. There's a reason for that. That's what Mary just explained. She goes on, uh, in other ways, women are stronger than men. Female muscles are more fatigue resistant and recover faster. Women have larger frontal and temporal areas of the brain, which translates into better language and verbal skills. They hear better than men and they can also better distinguish between a broader range of emotional tones. They retain a stronger memory for where things are and for past events. Men and women process information differently. The male brain tends to process information in a localized manner, where the female brain processes it in in a more networked, interconnected fashion. So men are like waffles, women are like spaghetti. Men and women literally see things differently. The structure of a man's eye makes him better at tracking movement, while the structure of a woman's eye makes her better at identifying objects as well as analyzing color and texture. I learned this this summer, I, I, I took some courses uh, on, on handgun safety and such, and the instructor was saying, for first-time shooters, women are almost always better than men at stationary objects, and men are almost always better than women when the object's moving. Uh, In a study done on 100 babies on the day they were born, male babies were found to prefer looking at moving objects, while female babies preferred looking at faces. Sexually, a man's body is structured to harden, initiate toward a woman, and give. Her body is structured to soften, welcome, and receive. Besides the obvious sexual reproductive differences, male and female bodies also exhibit skeletal differences, chemical differences, hormonal differences, neuroprocessing differences. In muscle fibers alone, researchers have identified no fewer than 3,000 genes that are differentially expressed between male and female. God designed male physiology in such a way that whether or not he ever marries and has children, a man is uniquely equipped to be a husband and father. Conversely, God created female physiology in such a way that whether or not she ever marries or has children, a woman is uniquely equipped to be a wife and mother. Generally speaking, a man's constitution inclines him toward initiation, provision, and protection, whereas a woman's constitution inclines her toward responsiveness, care, and nurturing, and relating. That's not to say that women can't protect and provide or that men can't nurture. It's simply to say that our strengths are not merely a function of our personalities, gifts, and competencies. They have a strong sex-based component. Whether a woman is caring for children or running a business, she brings uniquely feminine strengths to the table. God created man and woman, sons and daughters, for the unique purpose of bringing God glory. The Bible indicates that we shine light on the beauty of the gospel in distinct ways. Men tell the Jesus story in bodies that reflect truths about the nature of Christ's relationship to the church from the groom's perspective. Women tell the same story from the perspective of the bride. God strengthens us, sex specifically, to honor him in this way. God created me female, Mary says. Therefore, he wants me to be strong as a woman. And being strong as a woman is different than, but not less than, being strong as a man. What does it mean to be strong as a woman and not just as a human? It means being who God created me to be as a woman and faithfully telling the story he created me to tell as a woman. Oh, I love this. I love it. And I love it there are women who are writing this way and speaking this way. Uh, so hats off to, to Elizabeth Elliott, Abigail Dodds, and to Mary Cassian. Now, this contrasts their approaches with, with Amy Byrd's recent book. So in her book, she affirms that men and women are different, but she doesn't ever specify how beyond the, the being biologically male or female. So over and over and over, she says, yes, they're different, but she never says explicitly how they're different. How are they different? Uh, And it it seems to me that the egalitarian view and the the narrow complementarian view are hesitant in a way that basically wants to emphasize that men and women are both human and talks about them in this androgynous way. And the the broad view tends to say, of course, they're both human. They're both made in the image of God. They share many uh, characteristics, but they're also very different and beautifully different, complementary in their differences. And we celebrate those differences. So a little different approach. Uh, Bird is determined not to associate any kind of subordinate role to women. So she asks, if women's key distinction from man is ontological subordination, how is she then equal to him? Again, the argue, no, no complementarian is saying that it's ontological subordination. Uh, women are not... Essentially inferior to men, not at all. Uh, so, um, I'm going to skip a bunch of stuff. You can, you can see my, my book review of her, thing, uh, of her book to see, to see the bigger gist. But my, my big burden here is that we not just emphasize humans in general, but humans as male and female. We don't want to underemphasize sexual distinctions because they're there, they're there in nature. There's an article, I was, when I was writing this, I was corresponding with Jonathan Lehman about it, and it led him to write an article called Biblical Manhood and Womanhood or likeness. It was on Nine Mark's website, March 20th of this year. And uh, I think the example he uses in that article is something like this um, from the movie Cars, the, the Pixar movie. It says, I don't remember their names, but like there's a race car and a pickup truck. Like uh, they're both cars, but the way you would you know, take care of them would be a little different. What they can do is a little different. They both do great things, but they do different things. Uh, and and similarly with men and women. Just knowing that they're different affects so much, and and we shouldn't be trying to minimize the differences. All right, that's that's argument five. Let me just quickly mention argument six, and then we'll do Q and A. Argument six is that God's people have historically embraced complementarianism, broad complementarianism. Uh, It's the predominant view overwhelmingly that God's people have had for millennia. So narrow complementarianism and evangelical feminism are about 10 minutes old when you look at the big picture. They are brand spanking new. And there's this new, if you're into following what's happening in in academic studies right now in evangelicalism, there's this new wave of, of, of interest in what's called theological retrieval. So trying to see what did, uh, Pre Reformation theologians and exegetes say. So, looking at the early church fathers and medieval theologians and, and focusing on that. And you know, I, I'm, I'm pro historical theology. I'm looking at Jeff Straub. He's, he's the historical theologian in the room. Yay for historical theology. Uh, what's that? Hysterical. hysterical theology? No, no, no. It's historical. Uh, so, that's good. But what I've noticed is that almost all of this retrieval is in areas like Trinity, which is good, and other doctrines, and almost none of it is in theological anthropology, rules of men and women. Because if you go back and you look at what theologians have said about men and women, it can make you blush. Uh, it's very broad, complementarian, <laughs> very broad. It is not even close to this, the, the, the narrow stuff or to egalitarianism, Here in a second. So my question is for you, if you're, if you're leaning that way, what do significant exogies and theologians in, in church history say about men and women in the home church and society? Why has the church traditionally embraced broad complementarianism? Is, is it possible that the spirit of our age has significantly influenced how we think about men and women? And I would encourage you, if you'd like to study this more, to read a book, I think it's on your hand out there, Herman Bovink's The Christian Family. So he's one of my favorite systematic theologians writing a book on this issue. I just read it uh, recently, and it's fantastic. All right, I'll, I'll stop there. I saw the first hand here. Go ahead. came in later and we're going back? Have you? Could you all hear him in the back? He's, he's, he's saying, well, haven't some egalitarians been trying to go back to the, this is what the original was. What they're doing is trying, the, the evangelical feminists, the, the, uh, they are trying to say the New Testament itself teaches egalitarianism. So I'm actually saying historical theology, so post first century on uh, is what I was focusing on there. I'm gonna talk about Junius in the next session that I'm gonna do, by the way. Okay, other questions on the, these six arguments for broad complementarianism over here? Okay, so you meant, is there, is there a way that we can stop the logic slope Okay, this is a lot of questions. <laughs> Let me try to summarize it for everyone. He's saying uh with this logic that I've when I'm arguing for broad complementarianism, would that mean that uh it's we're being inconsistent if we apply these principles to things like whether women should be in combat roles or something like that. Is it inconsistent to then say in a local church uh, single women don't have to submit to all men? Does that is that inconsistent? Is it okay for women to vote in church meetings or to come up to the microphone in a congregational meeting and express an opinion or ask a question? Is that inconsistent? And I would say, no, it's not inconsistent, not at all. Uh, So a a single lady, I recently taught on this uh, to a a group of college leaders in our church. And one of the women who is narrow complementarian was respectfully uh, asking questions about this. And I said, okay, how do we relate to each other? Uh, put aside the fact that I'm, I'm one of the pastors here, but just as a as a, a man and you're an unmarried woman, how do we relate? Well, you're my sister in Christ. And let's say we were to go outside together and there's a shooting, like a mass shooting going on. Now, I'm going to use my body to protect you from getting hurt. And if you resist, tough. I'm going to protect you. Uh, and she's like, hmm. I'm okay with that. Uh, like, <laughs> like I, I'm going to treat her like a sister. I think that's, I'm not asking her to submit to me. Uh, so we're not asking single women to submit to all the men. We can differentiate that. And then still I say, what is most fitting and appropriate for how to act in your various types of relationships? I think, I think it's consistent. On the voting in church, I think there are different views on this historically, uh, uh, so when it was more family oriented, less singles, there was the one vote of a household. Um, that's not feasible today because there's so many singles, but my wife often tells me, I wish we could just do household voting. <laughs> yes, sir. All right. I wish you had a mic for that. So I'd have to summarize that. Cause, um, uh, bas- yeah, you are saying, um, maybe some people are leaning towards narrow complementarianism because so many complementarians are are aware to this danger leftward and not sufficiently aware of the danger rightward. And there's so many people abusing headship and they're not being called out. And and we need to focus on that equally, if not more in some contexts. Yeah. And I'd say, know your context and know what the dangers are. And yes, there are errors on the left and the right and call out the sins on both sides. Amen. 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 So I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with what you just said. Paul, do we need to stop? Let's keep talking after the break. So, uh, we'll come back in about 15 minutes.